Recently, I had the opportunity to interview Parallel Financial's Chief Investment Officer, Greg Towner, and we talked about some of the concepts in his new book, Investment Lessons of 2020. I wanted to repurpose that content into a podcast, so a few times we mentioned some charts and things like that, which obviously you won't see, but this is just such good information that I thought it would be great in the form of a podcast as well. As always, make sure to check out our new website, www.weeklywealthpodcast.com. Make sure to download the uh, Roadmap to Financial Success. And if you've ever wondered what it's like to work with a financial advisor, email me, david, at parallelfinancial.com. And let's get together for uh, 30 minutes or so, whether it be via Zoom or in person or by telephone. Let's talk about what's keeping you up at night with regard to your money and see if there are any next steps. Hope you enjoy this episode. This is the Weekly Wealth Podcast with certified financial planner, David Chudik, where we discuss the wealth building mindsets and tactics that can help you to build and maintain wealth for you, your family, and your business. Okay, well, it is 12.02 and I want to be respectful of everybody's time and get this webinar started. But today, I'm very excited to introduce Greg Towner. Greg is the uh, Chief Investment Officer of Parallel Financial, and Greg heads up Parallel Financial's uh, investment team. And uh, hey, Greg, how are you? Tell, you? tell us a little bit about yourself, about your, your experience in the money management industry. And we're going to be talking about your, uh, your book today. And I'd like to know, what the heck made you decide to want to jump into the book writing business? Yeah, that's great. Thanks, David, and thank you for having me. Uh, so as far as my background is concerned, uh, I started in the industry in the late 1990s. So I've had the uh, opportunity to learn from the, the up and down of the tech bubble and great financial crisis, and then obviously everything we've gone through here in the last handful of years. Uh, most of my career I spent working for some of the larger brokerage and banks in the industry, working on their asset management side, managing money a little bit on the client facing side. But about seven or so years ago, I had the opportunity to move over to Parallel Financial, which uh, registered investment advisor, about $700 million under management right now. And as you said, I'm the chief investment officer there. So I basically oversee the investment philosophy process, uh, manage most of the individual portfolios, uh, and you know, some other various responsibilities as well. Uh, you, you mentioned the book. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, writing a book uh, is, 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 is every bit as hard as people thought it would be or as I thought it would be. You know, I had in the back of my mind for a handful of years, I wanted to put something out there that kind of summarized my investment approach and, and beliefs, but just really never had that kind of catchy way to do it. I just thought, oh, it sounds boring or I could just make it a blog post or something like that. But then, lo and behold, we all had the events of 2020 come along. And you know, really, as the year, you know, as last year came to an end, I, I had the realization that you know, a normal market cycle, economic cycle might last, oh, it varies, maybe five to 10 years. We kind of encountered all of that really within about a 12-month period. So it got to me to thinking, you know, all the, the various lessons I've learned throughout the market period, you know, and, and mistakes investors have made they kind of all got condensed. And there was really a lot that could be learned from that period and taken forward. And so I decided to take all the events we all lived through, tie in you know, a lot of my beliefs and in investing 
and just, you know, while the circumstances change, you know, it was the tech bubble one time, it was the real estate another time, now it's the pandemic. The underlying circumstances change, but the mistakes that investors make, and then hopefully the lessons that are available for them to learn going forward really stay about the same. So that, that's why I ended up doing the book uh, this year. Yeah. So tell me about the significance of the cover of the book. Yeah. So I had a great uh, graphic designer help me with this here, but that orange line is the actual S&P 500. Uh, stock market throughout calendar year 2020. And you can see the kind of tied in with the calendar itself. And then might be a little hard to see, but in kind of in the background, a lot of the words there are some of the lessons pulled from the book, you know, fear and greed and what works for you and, you know, risk and don't fight the trend. You know, a lot of different little things that are covered in the book, uh, just kind of a subtly in the background there. Yeah. Yeah. And what's crazy is the, uh, you know, the fear that was going through a lot of investors' minds during that, that very, very steep uh, downturn of, of the market. But then as you see, it, it kind of came back up. It took a little while. The, the sky didn't fall. I'm going to turn this mostly over to you and we're going to talk about, you know, some of the concepts in, in, the, uh, in the book here. So let's, uh, let's take it away. Yeah. I mean, really where I wanted to start is talking about predictions. I think like yourself, not only are we big stock market people, but we're big sports fans. And what do you hear? What do those two have in common? A lot of talking heads making predictions all the time, most of them wrong, but then people forget what they predicted and, and life goes on. But in the investing world, it's not just fun and games like, you know, watching a game, it's real serious business. So there's so much noise out there, you know, that people get distracted by and trying to follow predictions from so-called experts. But let's, let's look at a scenario. Let's pretend that somehow you could have, back in January 2020, before the pandemic started, you could somehow have the front page to the newspaper of your choice for the entire year. All the financial information is, is blocked out, but everything else that we went through, the pandemic, civil unrest, a crazy election, everything else, you have access to all that information, perfect information. What would you have thought the market would have done? It would have been you know, scary, probably would have sold and ran for the hills, right? But of course, that didn't happen. The S&P finished the year up 18%, almost double its normal annual return. Uh, so even with so-called perfect information, if you had that around the news, you could not have predicted. So how is everybody supposed to make predictions without perfect information, which we almost never have? So I think that's just kind of the, a broader takeaway from 2020 of, you know, you need to have a process and a plan uh, and, and ignore predictions. It, it's just, it's really tough to see the future. And like you said, last year with everything that happened politically, election, COVID and everything else, we still had an up year and who would have, who would have, uh, who would have predicted that. So talk to us about some timeless lessons. Yeah. So really the book is about a whole number of different lessons that can be taken away from 2020. And we're just going to touch on a few here today. But let's go ahead and start out with a big one for us and that's quality. And so we start our process with a quality focus. And why is that? I mean, if you look at studies academically over the years and our, our personal experience, quality investing offers good, attractive returns. But really more importantly than that for us is that they tend to have lower volatility. You know, we have a chart here that shows historically higher quality assets have about 35% lower volatility than the low quality. And that proved true in March of 2020 when things went bad. You know, if you look at an ETF that is kind of a tracker for lower quality assets, it declined just under 50% from high to low in that period. 
whereas a higher quality one declined about 33%. Still a rough decline, but that 33 is about in line with a normal bear market. The lower quality losing about half. I mean, few people can withstand losing half of their assets uh, and not make some terrible decision at, at the low and then, and then make compounding errors after that. So having most of your portfolio in quality to us keeps people invested and keeps the volatility away from them making, you know, just emotional decisions at the worst time. And most of our process has some form of reducing that emotional decisions. So, so two questions. Number one, how do you, or how could an investor determine, you know, what, what makes it a, a quality stock and, and two volatility, what is volatility for the, for the layperson? Yeah, I mean, both of those have a, you know, a variety of answers. You know, for us, we use some third-party research to screen for quality of stocks. So for example, it has to meet a certain metric by value line and a certain metric by standard and poor's. Um, it can be defined in a lot of different ways. I would just say a company that has a lower amount of debt and the ability of, to generate cash flow to cover all their expenses at the very basic. As far as volatility, I mean, we, of course, you know, on the institutional side, measure it in a lot of ways around standard deviation and sharp ratio and all that. But for the individual investor, it's just more about how much is a typical drawdown for their portfolio and how does that compare to the broader market? Are they, is their drawdown with their portfolio similar or worse or less than maybe a broader market comparable portfolio? So in, in what you were saying, uh, the quality stocks went down less during the uh during COVID in March of 2020. So it would have been easier for investors to, to kind of stay in the market uh, because it was a little, little bit less downturn and, um, and, and they didn't get out and make that bad decision. Right, exactly. And then really tied in with that is our, is our next big lesson and big part of our process is, is it has to be a rules-based process. You know, my book has a lot of different quotes in there. I start off each section with a quote that I think is really relevant. This actually is one of my favorites. Uh, investment success accrues not so much to the brilliant as to the disciplined. We talk a lot about discipline of process in the investment philosophy. You know, it needs to be something that is preventable or that you prevent the noise from distracting you. You know, we talked about the predictions and all of that noise. You know, you don't want just random decisions. You don't want to chase something because your friend mentioned it. You don't want to, you know, sell something because somebody on TV, you know, talked negatively about it or what have you. So you need some sort of process in place. But perhaps most importantly, it needs to be something that you can stick with, whether you're managing it or an advisor is managing it, a process that you believe in and that you can stick with during time. Some people just chase whatever is the hot thing, and maybe it doesn't actually suit their personality. And then lo and behold, they can't stick with it when things get bad. So a rules-based process. Yeah, it's interesting talking about the noise. I saw on a, a CNBC headline on CNBC.com a few weeks ago, it said something to the effect of S&P up 100 points, struggles to maintain all-time high. So like in any other world, that would be a positive that it's up. And somehow the uh, the news made it to seem that it, it's struggling. It's only, uh, that's higher than it's ever been. So that noise with, with all of the different forms, I mean, you can get investment advice from TikTok, from Twitter, from, <laughs> from CNBC, from, and, and a lot of it is just plain noise and not necessarily uh, applicable data that you, can, uh, that you can definitely remove the emotion from. Well, taxes, I love paying as much taxes as I can. So let's talk about that. Yeah, we'll keep this brief. You know, taxes isn't the most exciting thing, but like you said there, no one wants to pay more in tax than they have to. It, 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 you know, 
poor tax planning really is a drag on performance returns that you don't often see firsthand until you have to pay them later on. But actually another big lesson from last year was the opportunity that arises occasionally to harvest some losses. So in March, 2020, when the market fell off hard, well, you know, a lot of people had investments that had some, some losses that they were able to realize and immediately deploy those assets into other securities you know, that weren't identical to avoid some tax rules but basically to capture that loss, use it to offset some other gains. So that, that type of thing is important to keep in mind for future big market sell-offs, but not just then, there's always individual stocks that for whatever reason or individual securities that are underperforming. So taking advantage of, of opportunities to tax loss harvest can really help boost uh, the efficiency of your returns. And that's definitely a place where you need to be maybe conversing with your, your CPA, your financial advisor and things like that. But right. um, there are absolutely opportunities to, uh, to save on your, on your taxes with tax loss harvesting. And I know that that's something that you were working on within our portfolios last year. Don't fight the Fed. Talk to us about yeah. this. Yeah, that's a big one. Don't fight the Fed. So this is a big lesson that you know, I've, I've heard throughout my career and it just keeps getting reinstilled. We're looking at a chart here of the Federal Reserve Bank assets going back to around 2000. You can see there's a steady, you know, big jump up in the big gray bars there during the uh, financial crisis. It has steadily increased in the past decade after that. And of course, last year, it just went straight up and it's continued to go higher. Basically, the Fed doing what they're doing provides liquidity to the market. They went all in March 23rd of 2020 doing a number of plans that they'd never done before. And not coincidentally, that was the exact day that the market bottomed. So they have a tremendous power in how that they uh, you know, influence the market. And so it's important to have track of what they're doing, but also to not use them as an excuse. You know, so we saw coming out of the financial crisis, we heard a lot of people that had gotten out, you know, they panicked and got out. And then they said, oh, this is just a Fed-induced rally, you know, that sort of thing. So they, they didn't believe it and, and they didn't want to be involved. And we've heard some of that this time as well. But I mean, the Fed provides liquidity. That's, that's their job. And so they've helped drive the market. And so they're going to be important to follow in the months and, and years ahead as perhaps some of that uh, liquidity is taken away. We'll see how that affects things. So the fact that I may or may not approve of what the Fed is doing Number one, they're not asking me. And number two, if it's resulting in a portfolio increase, it's still a positive thing for me, correct? Yeah, you got to keep your, your, your opinions out of things. And we'll really, we'll really focus that in on, on the next topic if we want to go ahead to the next one here. Oh, this yeah, there's um, no opinions in this one. Yeah, right. So very, very important. We found this out again in 2020. It's been a long part of our career. I love this first quote here. This is from a guy back in the mid-1900s, a CBS news anchor. The biggest business in America is not steel, automobiles, or television. It is the refinement and distribution of anxiety. Again, that's coming from a news person himself. That is scary, so we, but it's true. Yeah, they call it distribution of anxiety. We call it noise, whatever you want to call it. And so we're not playing favorites here. Both the 16 and 20 elections with different parties winning had very similar um, you know, events leading up to it. You hear a lot of investors said they didn't want to get invested until after the election, you know, presumably because they wanted to see if their favorite person won. But afterwards, similar results, you know, uh, after the 16 election, the market, you know, ran up. You know, a lot of people were like, oh, you know, half the people basically said, oh, I didn't, I didn't want that person to win. And then 2020, you know, similar, the opposite perspective. Uh, you know, again, market ran up. In fact, that month of the election, November 2020, was one of the top three 
uh, months in the history of the stock market for returns. Now, that's not to say it was because of the election necessarily. We had the vaccines approved then and all of that. But that's kind of the whole point. It's to us, it's that not that politics you know, has no influence whatsoever on investing. It's just, it's way down the list historically of importance. And so it's just, you know, it's probably very low in importance, but it's always very high in the emotions that it generates. So we, we, we battle this all the time, have through for years, getting people to completely separate the two, uh, to, you know, to, to eliminate the emotional side of things. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's just a tough thing because politics may be one of the more emotional topics. And it's very easy to say if the other party gets elected, the market's going to have a, a, a sharp downturn. And uh, I remember you and I did a podcast uh, several uh, several months ago, and it simply wasn't the case. I mean, there have been up markets in, in, in both when either party has been in power. There have been some down markets, but it's not as correlated as one might think. You know, this is an area that I know holds dear to your heart, the, the planning side of things, David. And, and I like this quote, if you don't have a plan, you'll become part of someone else's plan. And, and this is actually referring to trading and investing, but I think it's, you know, for our purposes here, about the financial planning side of things. You know, 2020 saw an unfortunate number of reminders of the importance of having various aspects of the plan, you know, whether it's needing to have a will in place, emergency savings, you know, various goals. Obviously you can speak to the insurance side of things, Just stark reminders of the need for a broad financial plan. Right, right. I did a podcast and, and I've talked a lot about an acronym called BASICS, um, B for budget. So you can, Greg can control what Greg spends. Greg can't control what the markets do. Um, allocation is kind of where we put our money. S is systems, our financial systems. You know, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are systematic investing. There's even spouses sometimes say we don't spend more than a certain amount of money without talking to each other. Uh, I for insurance, uh, having the right insurance is in place. And then C for caring. How do you use your money to care for the world? And those are all things that we can control. Um, you know, you can control how much you spend. You can control where you put your money. You can control your financial systems and habits. You can control if you understand your insurances. And that is part of a, uh, an overall financial plan that is not market dependent. Now, last year, the government did come to the rescue with stimulus packages, but it didn't come overnight. And those who had some emergency savings did well and were able to stay afloat. Those who didn't had a really, really tough time. So, so that financial plan is, uh, is just a huge part of life that we all need to be, uh, be thinking about. You know, there's a, there's a lot of lessons in this book, but I really wanted to kind of finish off with one, one big one here. And, you know, a lot has changed in the investing world since, you know, since I started investing in the, in the mid 1990s and, and got in the industry in the late 1990s. You know, for example, uh, back before I worked in the industry, when I was just investing on my own and working in a different uh, career, you know, to get a stock quote, uh, I'd have to go across the street from where I work to the, to the big bank there and wait in line with all the old retired guys to type in the ticker in the Quotron machine or I go down to the library and, and dig through uh, periodicals to get some company research, that sort of thing. I mean, of course, we all now have all that information, for better or worse, right on our phones all the time. You know, even when I started in the industry during the the, the tech bubble period, you know, stock trades were thirty to forty dollars online for even just a small trade, and people were fine with that. Now, of course, trades are free. You know, back then, investment advisory business, you know, you would charge two percent plus of assets. So you'd have brokerages charging high commissions and shady advice, put you in high cost funds. You know, now you can get professional investment advice for a very affordable uh, rate. 
So a lot has changed, but there's two big things that have not changed throughout my career and I'm very confident will not change going forward. Fear and greed. Unfortunately, the emotional side of things, something we talk about a lot is fear and greed. And so, you know, if we go to the next slide, David, you know, basically, amazingly, 2020 had both of them. I mean, it's easy to talk about the fear side of things. We all know the pandemic and everything else that was going on. There were a lot of us had fear in our personal lives and, and so forth. But amazingly, the year also showed greed. You know, people were bored at home and trading and chasing meme stocks and whatever else they were doing. So we saw a wide range of emotions tied to investing last year and have since then. It's nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, we all are subjected to some of these emotional pulls, even those of us in the professional positions. That's why when we put all these processes in place, it's not just for our clients to try to reduce their emotions, but it's, it's frankly for us as well. Nobody is immune. So you need to have a process in place to try to reduce some of it because we, we, we truly believe that the biggest obstacle to your financial success is, is really yourself and some of the decisions you, you may or may not make at, at just the worst possible times because they usually get compounded. If you sell near a market low, you usually are, are apt to not want to get back in as it moves higher. So one emotional decision usually compounds over and over. So our process, we're just trying to reduce that at all times. I've, um, I've been in this business long enough to where some of the reasons that people give you for either acting or not acting, it's just, it's pure emotion and that's all it is. And a good decision needs to take emotion out of it. I mean, everything from, well, my granddaddy gave me that stock. He wouldn't want me to sell it. Well, if it's not a good stock anymore, maybe your granddad would want you to profit from it um, and, and get out of it. But, but taking emotions out of our financial decisions is so, so important. That's why I believe that working with a good financial advisor is, is very important. But, it, but if you don't work with a financial advisor, you can have conversations with your spouse. You can have conversations in investing clubs, book clubs, things like that, and have some accountability as well. Because let's face it, all of us, you know, when left to our own devices, we, we may make some, uh, some decisions that, uh, th that just are not in our best interest. For anybody, I do have a few extra copies of the book. So if you email me, David at parallelfinancial.com, that's David at parallelfinancial.com, I can get a copy of the book in the mail to you, or, or we can, if you're local, we can deliver it, uh, deliver it in person or, or, um, or pick it up here at the office. And also I would love if everybody would check out my podcast, www.weeklywealthpodcast.com. We put out episodes on a weekly basis, and we talk about the mindsets, the tactics, and the strategies that can help you to build and maintain wealth. Uh, Greg and I have done a few episodes, and it's always just a, a thrill to share with his his wisdom and, and learn about process-based investing. But uh, we talk about all aspects of, of, uh, of financial planning, mindsets, insurance, and, um, and everything else. So so with that being said, we were looking to go for about 30 minutes. We have a few minutes. If anybody, uh, we can we can take a few questions. If, every, if anybody has any questions, either via chat or um, if you unmute yourself. Um, hey, David. Hey, Greg. This is Stan. I do have a question. Yes, Stan. Great. Hey, what, what are some of the tools to take the emotions out of the equation, to take the fear out of the equation? What are some tools to grow resistance to that human urge? 
Yeah. So, I mean, basically our entire process, every step involves some sort of way to do that. I, I think I may have noticed you came in after a few of them so David can get you the recording. But so, for example, the first couple that we talked about is focusing on, on high quality assets. They, yeah, he's going to bring up the chart here, but quality tends to have much lower volatility than the broader market and certainly much lower volatility than uh, poor quality assets. So if you can have, you know, during market correction periods, if you can have less of a drawdown, uh, you're far less apt to make you know, emotional decision at that point. So that's kind of step number one. You know, then the next step is, is to follow a rules-based process. This can mean a lot, you know, for us on the institutional side, it's a little bit more detailed. Some individual investors, it's as simple as contributing every paycheck to a portfolio, only looking at it once a year and rebalancing at that point. You know, I encourage people to look at things as rarely as possible. I encourage people to never ever under any circumstances watch financial news television. I, I only watch when I get sent news clips of good friends of mine that are on there. Otherwise it is never ever on for me. So those are just some of the starting points, but basically between our investment philosophies and the book itself, it just kind of ties in little different things to reduce you know, the likelihood you make those mistakes. I mean, there's no way to completely eliminate it. I mean, I guess you could argue there's some, you could have a portfolio driven by a quantitative computer model, but people then sometimes in the worst case go in and, and mess with it and can't, you know, can't help themselves from, from messing with the model. So it's about reducing some of those things, uh, you know, whether it's diversification, setting up an allocation that truly suits your mindset and your goals that allows you to be comfortable with, okay, maybe I'm gonna give up some of the upside potential because it allows me to know that I'll be able to get through some of the more difficult periods as well. So those are just a few kind of starting points. And from, from a non-investment standpoint, I would just okay. also add accountability, uh, whether that's your financial advisor or, or just the people around you uh, to help uh, to reason our way through when there may be some problems, if the market's going down, but if we're still in a, uh, in a portfolio that makes sense, well, then it made sense before the market downturn, it still makes sense now. Yeah, thank you both. And I, I do apologize. I did join late. I am looking forward to the recording. David also sent me your book, Craig, and I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that over the, the next couple of weeks. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Glad you uh, popped on there, Stan. Did we have any other any other questions or? Okay. Well, perfect. Well, I thank everybody for, for popping in. Uh, we can definitely get uh, get the recording out and we will be posting it on, on uh, social media. Um, anybody who would like a complimentary copy of the book, uh, shoot me an email, david at parallelfinancial.com. That's david at parallelfinancial.com. And uh, we can get that out to you. It's a really good, easy read. And it, it really works well for both beginning investors and sophisticated investors. And a lot of the truths hold, uh, hold true for, for both levels. So with that being said, Greg, did you have any, uh, any closing thoughts to close us out? Just the last thing is, you know, 2020 taught me and I think showed everybody that there is really, truly a lifetime of financial lessons that you could take away from one pretty short period of time. And hopefully the next bear market will be much different and not be a worldwide pandemic. Um, but whatever the reasons are, I think you'll be able to take away some things from the last you know, 12 to 18 months and use them going forward. I love it. And anybody who is ever interested in a portfolio review or just talking about your own personal financial situation, 
I can be reached at 864-385-7999, or you can email me at david at parallelfinancial.com. So with that being said, we appreciate everybody's time. Greg, as always, it's just a pleasure to uh, draw upon your wisdom. And uh, until next time, uh, and we, we are doing these, uh, we're going to do webinars once a month, not necessarily with Greg, but on a different financial topic, because I believe that how we handle our money should positively impact our lives and the lives of those around us. And I'm just on a mission to help share financial situation, because if we eliminated financial problems within our lives, we would be eliminating a heck of a lot of problems. With that being said, be on the lookout for some uh for some uh, uh, reminders on the next webinar. And we hope that everybody has a great weekend.